thank you. So I'm going to sit and speak without the microphone, so I hope those at the back can hear. Thank you very much, Leila. I'm very happy to be back in Oxford and back at OTJR. So I want to start my talk with a recent disciplinary finding that was made in South Africa in 2013. It was a finding by the Health Professions Council of South Africa against Dr. Vota Basan. It was a finding of responsibility for breaches of professional ethics. Dr. Basan is a cardiologist in Cape Town, and in many ways, or at least in form, the proceedings before the Health Professions Council were simply another case of professional regulatory ethics against a doctor. But underlying this charge of professional ethics was Basan's conduct as head of Project Coast. Project Coast was Apartheid South Africa's chemical and biological weapons program. And the program was implicated in numerous kidnappings, poisonings, and killings in the 1980s. As of today, two and a half years after that finding, Basson has still not been sanctioned. He's been challenging the legitimacy and authority of the tribunal in court. But it seems likely that now, in 2016, some form of disciplinary sanction will be imposed on Basson. This, this decision in 2013 forms a backdrop to my paper. But turning to my paper specifically, I've long been interested in two issues. The first is the doctrine of conspiracy, the legal doctrine of conspiracy in law, what it means to conspire with someone else to commit a crime. And second, I've long been interested in what we might call the unfinished business of the Truth and Reconciliation Commission. There are many, many crimes that were committed during apartheid for which no amnesty was given or even sought and which have not since the end of apartheid and since the end of the TRC been prosecuted. So these two interests in conspiracy as legal doctrine and in the unfin unfinished business of the TRC merge in defining the subject of my paper. So in this paper, which is really a legal paper, I defend a very specific legal claim. I argue that there are reasonable grounds to believe that scientists and their political principles working at Project Coast for the apartheid government committed the crime of conspiracy to commit genocide under international law, and that as a matter of the direct application of customary international law in South African courts today, it would be permissible to prosecute those scientists and their principles. The conduct that underlies this legal claim was an attempt by the apartheid state through Project Coast to develop a fertility drug that could covertly be applied to black South Africans with the intention of curbing birth rates. So there's a lot to unpick in that legal claim and I'll seek to do that today. I'll seek to do it or to sustain it by, uh, through five parts or five elements. First, I will give a brief background to Apartheid South Africa's chemical and biological weapons program. Second, I will set out testimony at the Truth Commission relating to this fertility research. Third, I will set out the elements of conspiracy to commit genocide as a crime in international law and consider how the elements of this crime fit with the testimony before the Truth Commission. Fourth, I will consider questions of jurisdiction and prosecution today in 2016. And fifth and finally, I will raise questions as to how and as to whether the crime should be prosecuted today. So first, by way of background, let me say a few things about Project Coast. 
As I said, Project Coast is the code name of South Africa's covert chemical weapons program. It's initiated by the Minister of Defense, Magnus Malan, in 1981, and brings together scientists, doctors, and researchers working on chemical weapons. The project officer was Dr. Vodo Basson, the man I mentioned at the start. Much of what we know about the activities of Project Coast comes from testimony by scientists at the Truth Commission. There was a special hearing into its activities. And in general, through those hearings, attention has fallen on two main areas of research. First, far from being a defensive project aimed only at defending the state, it was shown to be intimately connected to apartheid South Africa's persecution of its enemies. The TRC report speaks of anthrax and cigarettes, but petulanum in milk and paroxin in whiskey. It was implicated in numerous poisonings. And second, the project was implicated in the production of street drugs, mandrax and ecstasy, that were distributed in South Africa. At the end of apartheid, Project, project Coast was shut down. The players generally dif drifted back into civilian life, and South Africa ratified the chemi Chemical and Biological Weapons Convention. In 1999, the state brought charges against Bassan, the leader of Project Coast. <coughs> These related to kidnapping, murder, attempted murder, and the possession of drugs. He was acquitted. I don't want to say too much at this point about the nature of those proceedings or the fairness and accuracy of that finding, except to say that the state appealed and the Constitutional Court ruled that certain of the charges could be reinstated. That was in 2005. The state, on receipt of that judgment, decided not to appeal, and that has been the end of criminal proceedings against Bassam. Let me say three other things about Bassam specifically. First, there is the nickname, which South Africans in the room will know. He's known widely as Dr. Death, and the nickname really tells you almost all you need to know about him. Second, Bassam is, I think, the best living exemplar of the failure of post-TRC justice, at least insofar as there was an attempt to prosecute him. He continues to practice to this day as a cardiologist in Cape Town. And finally, Bassan, or the Bassan issue, is emblematic of a much broader concern, which is how South Africa will now, in 2016, deal with the unfinished business of apartheid, at least the unfinished legal business of apartheid. For my purposes, the thing that is most interesting is that the charges against Bassan in no way related to his work on fertility on this fertility project. All of the political and popular discussion of Project Coast have focused on those two elements, on the kidnappings and poisonings, and on the street drugs. What I will show is that this third area of research, research into fertility, gives rise to, gives rise to individual criminal responsibility under international law. So that is part one. Moving to part two, which is the testimony at the TRC. We have evidence from, an, from original research from some scholars as to the activities of Project Coast, but most of the evidence really comes from the testimony of scientists themselves. And here I want to focus on the testimony of two scientists, Dr. Don Hursen and Dr. Skolk von Rendsburg. Hursen set up the specific unit in Project Coast that worked on fertility. That was Rodeplatt Research Laboratories, or RRL. Von Rendsburg joined the unit as, his, as its third director, both of them were under the command of Bassam. Van Rensburg testifies at the TRC that he was approached by Bassam in 1985 to work on a fertility project. 
the fertility project came with a cover story. And the cover story was that Jonas Savimbi, who was the leader of UNITA in Angola, which was allied with the apartheid state, or loosely allied with the apartheid state, was worried that his best female soldiers were falling pregnant. And he wished for apartheid to conduct research to prevent those pregnancies. Van Rensburg testifies that none of the scientists working at Project Post believed the cover story. They knew that something else from the start was going on. Under questioning from TRC investigators, Van Rensburg then revealed the nature of the project. And I will read or paraphrase some of the extracts. Under questioning from Jerome Chaskelson, who asks, can you tell us the exact brief of this front company? Hussen answers, the final brief, or our other brief, was a very important one, and it was, developed a was to develop a product to curtail the birth rate of the black population in the country. Chaskerson asks, could you, could you tell us a little bit more about this and who asked you, asked you to develop it? And Hussen replies, the person who directly instructed us to do this was Dr. Bassan. Now, there was a lot of talk about the ethics of this, and he spent some time quoting the census figures of 1981 or 1982 or whenever the census was. I can't remember exactly. But the census office stopped counting the number of black people when they reached 45 million. And the government decided it was not feasible to make known to the public that there were that many people. And this was one of our big threats. I think the figure of 28 million was made known. That, that was what was presented to us by Dr. Vassan. And by the way, this project was known up to the level of the Surgeon General, because it was the Surgeon General who visited us, both General Nivot and General Knobel, taking over from him. General Nivot said to us, this is the most important project that we are working on. Another commissioner, Faisal Randero, then presses Hursin on the specifics of the project. In particular, uh, Randero is focused on the effectivity of the drug they're seeking to develop. Hursin says, Mr. Chairman, one thing I can remember is that we spoke about the effectivity of the product, whether it would be 100% permanent sterilization, or whether it could be temporary, or whether 80% is effective. You know how these things work. We, in fact, discussed involving statisticians from the university, and we discussed getting them secret clearance so they could work on the project for us to work out models. What would be the influence on population growth if it was 50% effective for one year or 60% effective for one year? I think this answers your question. That was Dr. Hurston's testimony. Van Rensburg subsequently testifies with more detail as to the project. He says, there are various approaches. You can either make the male sterile, which is actually easier. You get the sperm-specific antigens, and in fact, these things happen spontaneously in certain individuals, and they go sterile. Dr. Bornman was keen on this approach. I was a little bit more keen, although we worked on both approaches, to get a female vaccine where you target a protein compound or a hormone-like compound. There's unique proteins there, and if you have antibodies against the little developing embryo, it cannot implant and it's expelled. So that's the testimony, and there's more in the archives that you might wish to look at. I should say two, three things at this point about the testimony. First. The mentions of the fertility projects are a small part of the wider hearings. They are a small aspect of the hearing that of poisonings and toxins. Second, no one applied for amnesty at the Truth Commission for any work relating to the fertility project. 
And third, the TRC final report contains no mention of it. It's as if it didn't happen at all. So that is part two. Part three is the existence of the crime of conspiracy in international law. I wish to leave aside the factual matrix for a minute and look at the law. Conspiracy has a long and controversial history in international law, as some of you may know. Article 6 of the Nuremberg Charter uh, explicitly refers to the participants in the conspiracy, but the IMT, the International, international Military, Military Tribunal, does not use conspiracy as a charge. So it's sort of left aside at Nuremberg. More recently, the question of conspiracy arose in prosecutions coming out of the war on terror in Hamdan. In Hamdan versus Rumsfeld, the legal issue was whether or not military commissions could prosecute conspiracy as a violation of the laws of war. The jurisdiction of military commissions is only limited to laws of war, in other words, international criminal law. And so the question for the Supreme Court was whether or not conspiracy is criminalized, and the Supreme Court held it not to be criminalized. As a general statement, that is widely held to be correct, which is to say that conspiracy as legal doctrine does not just uh, tack onto existing international crimes. There's no self-standing crime of conspiracy, an inchoate crime that would tack onto any other existing crime. However, there is one specific crime which we know to be criminal, and which is indisputably criminal, and that is conspiracy to commit genocide. We know this in the first place because of the Genocide Convention. Article 2D of the Genocide Convention provides, and I will read it. In the present convention, genocide means any of the following acts committed with the intent to destroy, in whole or in part, a national, ethnical, racial, or religious group as such. And it lists killing members of the group, causing serious harm, deliberately inflicting group conditions of life cochlear to bring about the physical destruction of the group, imposing measures intended to prevent births within the group, and forcibly transferring children. Article 3 then provides that in addition to genocide, conspiracy and incitement are also criminalized. So we have the Centerpiece Convention on Genocide, which criminalizes explicitly conspiracy, and specifically cr criminalizes consp conspiracy to commit genocide by imposing measures designed to prevent births within the group. The convention has been ratified by 146 states and is widely seen to reflect customary international law for the most part. There might be some complications, but as a general statement, that suffices. South Africa was not party to the convention at the time, but it doesn't matter for present purposes. So what we know is that genocide exists in customary international law and that the crime of conspiracy to commit genocide exists. In addition, we know that it is an inchoate crime which is to say that the object of the conspiracy need not be effectuated for the crime to have been committed. So what we have is a prohibition on conspiring to impose measures, measures that are intended to prevent births within the group. So with the testimony in mind, I want to draw out these elements as they've been developed in the common law and in the jurisprudence of the ad hoc tribunals <coughs> to see whether the testimony shows that a plausible case can be made. Of course, as a criminal lawyer, I wish to start with the material element and the mental element, a very basic divide between the conduct and the fault. As to the material element, the, basics is, the basic position is as you imagine it to be. You simply need an agreement between two or more people to commit the crime. The agreement need not be formal or express. We have jurisprudence that says it may be inferred from the conduct of the conspirators 
or the concerted or coordinated action of a group of individuals. It has also been recognized in the case law that coordination can take place in an institutional context that might be important in our case, where you might have different elements of the conspiracy working and not necessarily relating to each other, but forming part of a wider whole. In addition, of course, the conspiracy must be, as the material element, a conspiracy to commit genocide. And in this case, it's certainly the case that designing a drug that would be given to uh, either men or women is the kind of thing that would constitute the act of genocide under 2D of the Genocide Convention. Other examples might be separation of the sexes, a prohibition on marriage, or sexual mutilation. But I would suggest that the imposition of a fertility vaccine is really at the heart of that provision. It really is at the heart of what it is to conspire to commit genocide. And further, the plan must be to deliver the, medicine, the um, drugs without consent. That's an essential element. And we see this in the testimony. Van Rensburg testifies that the vaccine might be delivered by telling the victims that you are giving them a vaccine for yellow fever. Huerson testifies that it could be delivered by putting it in beer or in maize or something along those lines. So clearly, there's an idea that this would be delivered covertly. That is the material element, an agreement to coercively impose measures designed to curb births within the group. Before turning to the mental element, I just want to make four points that are drawn from the case law that relate to responsibility for this project. First, it is not necessarily the case that every scientist or researcher engaged in the research at Project Coast is implicated in the conspiracy. But all of those who tacitly agree to participate knowing the end are potentially responsible. Second, each conspirator need not have communicated with each other conspirator or have been aware of the identities. The idea of a, of a hub and spoke is sometimes given how the conspiracy can move up to a center and capture participants who aren't aware of each other's work. This includes those who authorized its continued funding, in other words, the political principles of the project. Third, it does not matter that the exact way that the vaccine would have been delivered had not yet been determined. Hurson testified that the mechanism to get it to the people was the last thing you would research in the common law at least, from which the international criminal law of conspiracy draws, the speci specifics of the crime can be set out later. At this point, purpose is enough. An idea of the purpose is enough. And fourthly, case law from the ad hoc tribunals confirm the conspiracy to commit genocide is a continuing crime. That is to say that in practical terms, those who join the conspiracy later, either at the, t either at the level of participation or at the level of funding and sanction are also potentially implicated, as long as they had a tacit understanding of the purpose that is sufficient for the material element. Of course, you need a coincidence of this material element or the factual element with the fault or the mental element of the participants in the crime. This is the crime we're talking about, and so we need fault. And of course, anyone who's worked on genocide knows that the mental element for genocide is particularly complicated raises very difficult questions. The ad hoc tribunals have said that the mens rea for conspiracy to commit genocide is the same as the mens rea for genocide. And so, drawing from the case law on genocide itself, really there are two mental elements. First, in a very basic sense, the perpetrator must intend to act, 
and be aware of all the relevant circumstances of what he's doing. And second, and additionally, and this is always the crucial element, the perpetrator must act with that specific intent to genocide, which is the intent to destroy the group as such. This is the special intent that raises so many questions in the case law. So on this basis, we might say that when the ad hoc tribunals hold that the mens rea for conspiracy to commit genocide is the same as it is for genocide, it means that the participants must intend to enter into the agreement with full knowledge of the circumstances and intend to, to destroy the group. The enumeration of four groups in the convention, as I read earlier, has caused numerous, numerous difficulties in practice. Which groups are protected, how the criminal law relates to social scientific constructions of race, whether or not it is subjective and, uh, identification of the group in the mind of the perpetrator that matters, or whether it matters that the group is objectively uh, identifiable. In the present case, these issues do not trouble us. The testimony at the Tr Truth Commission reveals that the participants were participating in the conspiracy with the aim of targeting a racial group, in this case black South Africans, and that membership of that group was sufficient to be the target. So in other words, the group was positively identified and the construction of the group in the minds of the participants and the perpetrators matched the reality of the classification in the particular context, that is apartheid South Africa. In the second place, the specific intent requires that there's an intention to destroy the group in whole or in part. Of course, we might leave aside an intention to destroy the group in whole but intention to destroy the group in part turns on, in the case law, the number and prominence of the targeted individuals. But in particular, we know that the group must be substantial. So in Christich or Kerstich of the ICTY, the, the accused did not intend the destruction of Bosnian, Bosnian Muslims as a whole, but rather the Bosnian Muslim population of Srebrenica. And this was sufficient to fulfill the specific intent requirement. That the definition of genocide includes the qualification in part is important for our case because although we don't have specific details of what the intention was, it is almost certainly the case that to affect birth rates as was the goal, it must have been aimed at a substantial part of the group. It would make no sense for it not to be aimed at a substantial part of the group. So to draw together those elements, I think there's a plausible claim on the basis of this testimony and other research that as a matter of international law, the act of genocide, the act of conspiracy to commit genocide were carried out with the requisite fault. That is to say that those who were party to the conspiracy and who shared that specific intent bear individual criminal responsibility. So that's international law as, ex as it's existing in the ether or in the seminar rooms of Oxford. Of course, the more interesting question is what about jurisdiction and what about prosecution? So to leave aside the obvious, obvious point, there's no international tribunal with subject matter or temporal jurisdiction over this case. That's just a fact of positive international law. To labor another obvious point, the obvious forum state is South Africa. The nationals were South African, the perpetrators. The intended victims were South African. And the crime was effectuated in South Africa. We might get into discussions about the jurisdiction or the permissibility of other states prosecuting, but as a first instance, the natural form is South Africa. So that raises the question, could this crime, which was committed in the late 1980s, be prosecuted in South Africa today? 
at the outset we have two problems, well, mainly one problem. Conspiracy to commit genocide was not a crime in South Africa at the time. In fact, it's not a crime in South Africa today, at least as a matter of explicit prescription. The code and the common law, neither of them proscribes the crime. However, a number of states around the world take what is known as a monist approach to the incorporation of international law. In a monist approach, or monist states, rules of international law are directly incorporated into the domestic legal system without the need for transformation by a domestic legislature or court. So we need no implementing statute if you are a monist state. So with respect to South Africa particularly, Section 232 of the Constitution provides customary international law is law in the Republic unless it is inconsistent with the Constitution or an act of Parliament. So at least from the entry point of the Constitution, which is 1996, customary international law, including customary international criminal law, is directly incorporated into South Africa's legal system and can be prosecuted as such, as the domestic application of international law. Of course, that's not enough on its own. These acts took place prior to the entry force of the Constitution. But Dugard, John Dugard, South African international lawyer, has written at length about the approach prior to Section 232, and he has shown that Section 232 simply confirmed the old common law position in South Africa, which is to say that prior to it, customary international law, which no one in the apartheid state would have imagined to include customary international criminal law, in, can be directly prosecuted in South Africa. This uh, devolution into monism and dualism is really to say that the crime existed in South Africa as a matter of law in 1985. I should say, too, that the direct application of customary international law in domestic legal systems is very controversial among scholars for obvious reason, and that is that customary crimes in general have an indeterminacy problem, and so immediately we might think about the principle of legality. So Fletcher and Olin, two scholars, have written, customary law is anathema in the criminal courts of every civilized society. The reason for legislation is to drive custom from the system and to create a regime based on rules and standards declared publicly in advance by a competent authority. As a matter of principle, I'm sympathetic to this argument. The particular indeterminacy of customary rules does point towards the need for legislation, though of course legislative rules may themselves be indeterminate. So it's not as though we're dealing with absolutes, it's really a sliding scale of determinacy. But I'm not so sure that I'm sympathetic in the central case, I mean the particular case under consideration, which was which is because the conduct under consideration, which is the imposition of measures in in designed to um, prevent births, is right at the core of the customary crime. That is to say that the indeterminacy that we might have around the borders of a customary crime does not seem applicable in respect of core conduct. Reasoning of this kind may be seen in the House of Law or the Supreme Court in this country in R versus Jones with respect to the customary crime of aggression. The court said that the core of the crime is sufficiently precise for reliance, even if around the boundaries we're not so sure. So I'm not sure that there's a legality concern, either as a matter of international law as, or as a matter of domestic law. So to conclude the fourth part of my paper, today in 2016 it would be permissible 
as a matter of international law and as a matter of domestic law for South Africa to prosecute the conspirators. This would be a direct application of international criminal law in domestic courts. That conclusion leads me to the fifth and final part of my paper, and that is whether or not South Africa should prosecute this crime. And it's with respect to this um, question in particular that I'm very interested in hearing discussion on. At this point, I simply just I simply wish to raise four points that relate to that question. First, by way of context, the whole bargain of the amnesty process was that those people who did not come forward to receive amnesty would be prosecuted. However, as a starting point to this discussion, many, many, many crimes were committed for which amnesty was not given. That is to say that there are many outstanding cases. This is just one. Second, there's been little movement on these cases since the end of the TRC. There have been a couple of prosecutions, and in February of this year it was announced that uh, the Similana case was to be prosecuted in the Pretoria High Court. But it's a very scattered and ad hoc approach. Third, there are of course practical difficulties. Documents are lost, witnesses age or die, memories fade. And in addition, there may be fair trial concerns relating to the unnecessary delay in the institution of charges. Of course, there are in addition resource constraints on the South African criminal justice system. And fourth and finally, without making any statement about it or implication about the equivalency of responsibility, gross human rights abuses and crimes were committed by all sides to the conflict or to the struggle. That is to say that if prosecutions are to occur, they need to occur in a coherent way. <coughs> they need to sorry, address the fact of responsibility on different sides. How that happens and what it looks like is a difficult question. That fourth point implicates a fifth point, which is that there are political implications to prosecution, as there always are, and that if we are to deal with abuses by all sides, there may be responsibility on leading members of the current governing party in South Africa. So to conclude, I just want to say one final thing about the Fertility Project. Whether or not criminal prosecutions occur, I think that it ought to play a far greater uh, role in the consideration of party theory wrongs. It's obviously not just the egregiousness of the act that I'm concerned about. But I also think that the act, in a way, represents something very specific about apartheid or about its bankruptcy. And that is that many of its core elements are present in this case. We have the uninhibited power of the state, systemic racial discrimination, a reliance on bureaucratic evil, and also a founding assumption that the lives of individuals are simply objects of power. And so whether or not it's prosecuted as a matter of criminal responses, I think that it needs to be something that is addressed and discussed uh, more broadly. Thanks.